podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jeffrey Dahmer is one of the most notorious serial killers of all time. His brutal and disgusting crimes have echoed around the world for over 25 years as people have tried to understand his warped fantasies and how someone could inflict them on another human being. Join us for part two of our show. Sai, and we are Ace Podcast Nation. Welcome to our new series, The Serial Killer Files. This is the second part of our first episode of this series. In this brand new series, we will be selecting a different serial killer each episode and discuss the evidence, the crimes committed, and everything we can find on these heinous crimes. Needless to say, due to the nature of this content, we will be discussing during these shows they are not going to be suitable for people under the age of 18 or of a sensitive or nervous nature. We will always try to dis- discuss these crimes with tact and respect for the victims, as it's important for us to note that this series is a true, car- true, true crime series, meaning it's affected real people, real families and real communities. You can find all our podcasts and series on our YouTube channel in video format as well as audio format on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Pocket Casts, and PocketPodcast.co. Good start. Uh, During these shows, you can find interviews, podcasts, and content on a variety of subjects. We have series on mental health, football films, TV, music, wrestling, conspiracy theory, serial killers, and much, much more. Uh, This episode, as I said, is part two of episode one, The Serial Killer Files, and it is one of the most bizarre and brutal that we will probably cover in all of our our episodes. Uh, To join me as we take a trip into the depraved, scary and brutal world of serial killers, I'm very pleased to welcome my co-host Reese from the Conspiracy Theory Shows. Sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. Yeah, all good. It's all good. So all prepared, ready. Yeah, it's uh, it's just, as we uh, mentioned last time. It's brutal going through some of these stuff, but it's interesting to talk about. And uh, yeah, let's so let's get into it. Uh, the last uh, last sort of things we were talking about was uh, the victim, his sixth victim, Raymond Smith, uh, which was found under his uh, grandma's home. He had moved back into uh, so like approximately one week one week after the murder of Raymond Smith on or about the May the 27th he had l- lured another young man to his apartment but uh, on that occasion however Dharma himself accidentally drunk uh, the drink that he had laced with sedatives uh, and when he awoke the following day the guy who he had kidnapped had, uh, well he hadn't even kidnapped him he had, who had invited to his house had uh, robbed him 
of several items, clothing, money, watch. Uh, but obviously, Jeffrey Dahmer never reported this incident to the police, although he did divulge it to his probation officer. Uh, so a little bit of karma there for him, but certainly not enough. Um, yeah, so uh, in June 1990, so not too long after, uh, Dharma lured a 27-year-old acquaintance called uh, named Edward Smith to his apartment. He drugged and strangled Smith uh, on this occasion rather than immediately acidifying the skeleton or repeating the process of bleaching, uh, which, had, he had rent, which had rendered his previous victim's uh, skulls very brittle. Yeah, he placed Smith's skeleton into a freezer for several months in the hopes that it would retain moisture. Freezing the skeleton did not remove the moisture and the skeleton of his victim would be acidified several months later. Uh, Dharma accidentally destroyed the skull when he placed it in the oven to dry, uh, a process that caused the skull to explode. Uh, Dharma himself was later to inform police that he had felt rotten about Smith's murder as he had been unable to retain any of the parts of his body uh, afterwards. Yeah, so obviously this one was, this uh, victim was slightly different because it was somebody that he knew, um, you know, beforehand. It wasn't someone he'd met and then uh, sort of charmed or whatever, convinced to come to his room for whatever reason or to his house. It was so many, um, and in the interviews with the police, he expressed, expressed uh, regret, not for the crime, but because he hadn't been able to retrieve or keep any of the parts of his body, which I'm assuming he wanted to even more than perhaps some of the others, because he knew him. What makes these people tick? Yes, yeah, it's bizarre, mate, isn't it? Um, obviously, a lot of his... Uh, victims were you know they were strangers weren't they but in this case uh he wasn't it was someone he was in a who was a was in a work acquaintance i said or just yeah again he's just he's pushing his limits more and more and yeah he um he seems to be at this stage in 1990 he seems like he can't um he can't control it at all like there's not a very big waiting period between each victim. So like uh, Edward Smith was June 1990. The one who he had nearly killed and had got away, I think that was, uh, what was that, just looking now? I think that was June, June-ish. Yeah, the, the last uh, two no, years. No, it was May, sorry, it was, was May 1990. So yeah, he was on a, like, on a roll, for lack of a better term. Yeah, the last two years of his spree were pretty much. Was this how many of his killings? Yeah, Four, 13, like a, 14 of his killings were like the last two years? Yeah, so I'm just looking now. So June, uh, so he went May, where he tried to kill the guy who robbed him. June, he killed uh, Smith. And then less than three months later, after the murder of Smith, he encountered a 22 year old uh, guy. Ernest Miller from Chicago and basically Miller agreed to accompany Dharma to his apartment for $50 uh, basically uh, sorry saying basically a lot further agreed to allow him to listen to his heart and stomach so like it sounds like this guy was short of cash and he offered him $50 just to 
come back to his house, let him listen to his heart and his stomach. Uh, Have you noticed, when... though, almost every single one of them was he offered them $50? Yeah, and I know, like, $50 in 1990 was, you know, it's more than what it is Quite now. Quite a substantial amount. Yeah, not, like, you know, loads, life-changing, but it's, if you're skint and someone says, I'll give you 50 quid if you let me listen to your heart and stomach and you're that desperate for money, you're going to do it, aren't you? Uh when uh, Dharma attempted to perform oral sex upon Miller, he was informed that that will cost you extra. So it doesn't say in the info I've got here whether the guy was like a homeless man or whether he was like a rent boy or something. But that sort of... All I know about him was he was a dance student. So I'm guessing, you know, he was hard up on cash, etc. And obviously, if he was willing... For someone to perform an oral sex act on him, he must have been either homosexual or bisexual. Yeah, of course. And I mean, the fact that it's like obviously you don't know what the interaction was, <laughs> whether he'd be convinced or whether he did just come out as blatantly as that and say, no, that'll cost extra. Which would, if that was the case, you may think that he may be done, you know, taking part in sort of sexual liaisons for money before. But if it was yeah. like, oh, no, I'm not into that, or I know you're not doing that, I didn't come there for this, and then he sort of talked him into <clears> it, and he said, well, I'll do it, let you do it for money, extra money, you'd obviously don't know the full, uh, you know, the full sort of level of the conversation, I suppose. Um, so he said it'll cost extra. Dharma gave his intended victim two sleeping pills. Um, on this occasion, he had only... So, sorry... On this occasion, he only had two sleeping pills to give to his victim, uh, yeah. which meant he killed Miller by slashing his carteroid artery with the same knife that he uses to dissect the bodies. Um, basically, he wasn't able to incapacitate him because he didn't have enough sedatives to completely immobilize him. Uh, so well, that sort of shows his need to kill yeah. Um because even though he didn't have the required drugs to, to you know, completely immobilize his victim, he still, the, the urge and the need was too great for him. Yeah, th- this so is the one thing in the killing. show. Like, his killings, they weren't, he wasn't just ritualistic, he was just a savage killer. He had to kill. Oh, yeah. That was his thing. Absolutely. And then after he posed, after he killed him, he posed the bodies for various suggestive Polaroids as before. Um, but this time he repeatedly kissed and talked to the severed head while he dismembered the rest of the body. Which again, to me, when you read that and the difference to the early killings, it does seem like he's unraveling. So like the need to kill is getting greater. So he's doing it more and more. But also things like the talk into the head and kissing it and stuff that kind of speaks to his state of mind do you think yeah that the way I, I it's like everything we know about him is pretty much the way he did the killings and what he did etc is what he's told you know yeah of course yeah but he, he doesn't he comes across to me as like a coward, he doesn't like the confrontation. His killings have got to be well, they're sedated, you know. He, he doesn't he doesn't want the fight or anything at all like that. So I, I don't even know whether I believe some of these things. 
Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously evidence collection wasn't what it is today then. So no. a lot of, like they you say, a lot forensics of it's... what we do nowadays. No. And a lot of it's coming, obviously, like you say, from interviews for him. Is he doing what? it or has he said a lot of it to make him be more scary than he actually was? Yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, and like you say... Because if one of them, such... he knew he was going to die in prison, end of story. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So... Yeah. In his head, did he think, right, I'm leaving a legacy and I'm saying this, 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 this. Maybe we was just, I know he kept some of the parts of the bodies and ate some, but, you know, the kissing the head and talking to it, was he really that sick and deranged or has he just made us all believe that to be worse? I can kind of believe it just simply because he seems to have only been able to get his real sexual kicks when the they were completely unconscious. So... I can sort of understand how that would progress to that, but like totally you said, see what you're saying. He, just... By the time, by the time he was arrested, he was one of the most notorious serial killers ever. He knew he was famous. So, how do you make sure that you're remembered as one of the most brutal serial killers of ever? Is you when you tell your story, you embellish bits of it to make you seem even more messed up and whatnot. Like, you know, like some serial killers, when they get interviewed, they're concerned about how they look or how they react or how they're they're portrayed. Yeah. Because they want to be portrayed as like the smooth talking, good looking, a bit like Ted Bundy type thing. Yeah. Whereas he seems to thrive on people thinking he was fucked up and weird and, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I guess there's two ways to... To I think he realised he couldn't get away with the charm of Ted Bundy and he had to leave his legacy as such. But I'd rather believe he was just a fucking coward. Yeah, and that's true. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, he boiled the, the flesh and the organs left like a, into like a jelly substance using Soylex, which, again, that enables him to rinse off the flesh off the skeleton, um, which he had retain, intended to retain. Uh to preserve the skeleton, he had placed the bones in a light bleach solution uh, for 24 hours before allowing them to dry upon a cloth for one week. Uh, the severed head was initially placed in the refrigerator where, before being stripped of the flesh um, and then painted and coated with an enamel. Um, you know, he's keeping a severed head in his fridge next to his groceries. It's, it's just... It's the way their mind works. It's just so different to like you and me and any normal person. You know, like oh, yeah. people don't want to have meat and dairy on the same shelf in the fridge. And this guy's got a severed head. Like, it's fucking nuts. Um, as long so as you don't keep it on the same shelf as the dairy, though, I'm okay with that. Well, yeah, that's it. No, it's, uh, that's all right, then. Jeez. The, yes, uh, it's just crazy, mate. Three weeks after the murder of Miller, uh, Dharma encountered another man, uh, a 22-year-old named David Thomas, uh, at a mall, and he persuaded him to come to his apartment for a few drinks um, with some additional money on offer if he'd pose for some photographs, which to me, I think there's two aspects to the repeatedly being able to get people to come to his apartment for photographs and stuff. And I think the one aspect is he obviously had some level of charisma and charm about him that people trusted him enough 
Because you know, if like a creepy oh. old guy, creepy man or creepy woman, you know, if they're creepy by nature, you're not going to go with them. Yeah. Um, so he obviously had some level of charisma to get people to go with him. Um, but also, I think without the internet and things like that, people were less suspicious of people uh, and going with them and what might happen. You know, this was before internet dating and things now where people are wary of everyone they meet. Um, so and the other speak- thing back then, homosexuality wasn't as big as it is now, should we yeah, say? Yeah, it wasn't you as know? open, was it? So when people were getting off with it, they were taking the chances more, to put it bluntly. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's um, so yeah, you just you know, with the offer of money for photographs. Uh, in his statement to police after his arrest, Dahmer stated that after giving Thomas a drink with sedatives in, he didn't feel attracted to him, but he was afraid to allow him to wake up because he'd be angry over having been drugged. So therefore, he strangled him and dismembered the body, intentionally retaining no body parts whatsoever. Um, and nonetheless, he did take the photographs and go through his ritual from that side of it, which again speaks a lot to the fact that he had a really big need to kill, but the other parts were very much rooted in his sexual fantasies. Because when he wasn't attracted to the victim, he just strangled him, dismembered him, and got rid of him. He did take the photographs, but he didn't do the sort of sexual stuff. And I think that does speak to the fact he can't overcome the need the need to kill but the sexual fantasy side of it he had to be attracted to them and don't get me wrong it's still brutal and abhorrent and and horrible way for the guy to be killed and stuff and it's just weird how his method of killing changes depending on how he's feeling that day so like the guy before he he didn't have the sedatives but he still needed to kill him so he cut his throat this guy he had him he drugged him but he wasn't attracted to him after he drugged him but he still needed to kill him so he strangled him and just dumped him whereas quite often with serial killers you see the same methodology the same victimology the same um you know the same tools the same rituals he is a bit all over the map on his the ritual side of it yeah he's I don't think there's any way to really explain him, is there, other than just totally, utterly fucked up. Oh, yeah, mate, there's no doubt about that. It's, um, but it's weird, isn't it, because, like, he couldn't gauge whether he was attracted to him. He was unconscious, which, to me and you, is, like, mind-boggling. Because yeah, like, it was just he, he just right, you attract, them. find someone attractive. You find them attractive, but because his like that and the unconscious side of him having the sexual release with it, it's got so strong at this point that he can't tell until they're in that unconscious prone state whether they're gonna be suitable for that side of it. Yeah. At the you know at the very yeah, start he was just picking people who he's attracted to and then doing it but he can't do that at this point. 
he needs him to be totally unresponsive before he can get to that stage. Yeah, strange, isn't it? Which is... It's, it's, that doesn't even seem like a power thing. It's, no. It's, we, it just, you can't explain it. Oh, yeah. So, like, following the murder of Thomas, he didn't kill anyone for almost five months. Um, although he said in an interview that on five, a minimum of five occasions between the October and February of 1990 to February 1991, he had um, <clears throat> unsuccessfully attempted to lure men to his apartment. Uh, he'd also known to have regularly complained of feelings of anxiety and depression to his probation officer throughout 1990, uh, with frequent references to his sexuality, his solitary lifestyle, his financial difficulties, um, and on several occasions, he's known to have referred or to have harboring suicidal thoughts. Um, so, like, obviously, with that information and going back to what I said about him unraveling, it almost sounds there like where he was unraveling um, and struggling with the urge to kill, he maybe was finding it a bit more difficult to keep up that charming facade, which is why he you know, five, at least five times he was unsuccessful in getting the people to kill them. Uh, so I wonder whether that, he was finding it difficult to put on that mask, if you like, and charm. Yeah, I think he was, it was as if he didn't have no rush or buzz from, like, tricking him into his place and things. It was purely for the kill. He didn't care about anything else. Yeah, it wasn't like he enjoyed the the... the the chase, if you like, of like trying to charm them into his house. It was just a, something they had to do to get them to where he wanted. So it doesn't seem like he took much enjoyment from that side of it. No. Uh, yeah. So, um, so then up to February 91, he observed a 17-year-old man named Curtis Strauter was uh, standing at a bus stop. According to Dharma, he lured Strauter to his apartment with an offer for money posing for nude photos with the added incentive of uh, sexual intercourse. Dharma then drugged and strangled him with a leather strap and then dismembered him, with Dharma retaining the youth's skull, hands and genitals, while photographing each stage of the uh, dismemberment process. Uh, Less than two months later, Dharma encountered another uh, 19-year-old called Errol Lindsay, walking to get his key cut. Lindsay was a heterosexual. Um, who Dharma had lured him to his apartment where he drugged him and drilled a hole into his skull and poured hydraulic acid into it whilst he was alive. Whilst he was fucking alive. It's fucking... But, again, before you get to that bit, mate, that guy was a heterosexual. So all the others who were either bisexual or homosexual who'd gone with him he was able to charm a heterosexual man who he didn't know he just met a teenager in fact to go with him and he drugged him but fucking hell like oh drilled a hole in his skull poured hydraulic acid into it while he was alive lindsay awoke after the experiment which dharma had conceived in the hope of uh, inducing a permanent unresistant submissive state so basically, he wanted him in that prone, um, like that unconscious state where he couldn't defend, you know, he just completely 
at his mercy like he wanted with all his victims to do the sexual fantasies and stuff he had but he wanted him so he wanted him to be in that state but conscious if that makes sense so it seems like he wanted him aware what's going on but unable to do anything about it <laughs> how do you even come up with shit like that mate seriously I, I know what is it that I just you, you can't even think of an explanation of why how anything whatsoever just nothing no mate it's, it's just I'll tell you just nothing yeah you can't you know you can't oh, he did it for this reason maybe it was it there no. is no fucking reason whatsoever nope so lindsay woke up and he said um he just i don't want to get it right he said he woke up saying i have a headache what time is it uh in response to this dharma drugged him again and then strangled him he decapitated him retained his skull he then flayed his body placing the skin in a solution of cold water and salt for several weeks in the hope of permanently retaining it. Reluctantly, he had disposed of Lindsay's skin when it had become too frail and brittle. Um, so, like you say, obviously all his crimes are fucking awful and brutal, but this was on a just another level of what he did because he, this guy was aware of what was being done to him. All the other people were unconscious. And like, why? I, I, why now? Kind of start experimenting. Is it, you, do you know what I mean? It's not like he he's done these things with these people to experiment. The first loads of them is just to kill. That's it. Oh yeah. So, following this on May, sorry, I just went off the screen. May afternoon of May twenty sixth, ninety one. He encountered a 14-year-old boy. Now, I'm going to really butcher this name because it's quite a long one. So I really apologise if I pronounce it wrong. Uh, uh, Conorak Synthahasphone. I'm going to call him Conorak just because I can't pronounce his surname. Apologies. Uh, so he approached uh, Conorak, a 14-year-old. Uh, the youth with an offer of money to accompany to his apartment to pose for some pictures. According to Dharma, Conorak, the younger brother of a boy who he had molested in 1988, was initially reluctant with the pro, uh, proposal before changing his mind and going with him. Uh, the youth posed for a couple of pictures in his underwear before Dharma drugged him into unconsciousness and performed all sex on him. Uh, on this occasion, he drilled a single hole into the boy's skull uh, and then injected hydraulic acid into the frontal lobe. Before Conorak fell unconscious, Dharma led the boy into his bedroom where the body of 31-year-old Tony Hughes, whom Dharma had killed three days earlier, lay naked on the floor. And according to Dharma, he believed that Conorak saw the body yet didn't react to seeing the bloated corpse, likely because of the effects of the sleeping pills and the hydraulic acid that he had injected into his skull. Um, Conorak soon became unconscious, whereby... Dharma then casually drank some beers while laying alongside him uh, before leaving his apartment to drink at a bar, purchase some more alcohol. And in the early hours of May 27th, he returned to his apartment to discover that Conorak sitting naked on the corner. 
so sorry, he returned towards his apartment to discover Conorak sitting on naked on the corner of 25th and State. Um, so basically, like, he came back and the Conorak had come around. He found him on the street corner naked and confused. Dharma approached. Um, so then three distressed young women were standing near him, the boy. Uh, so Dharma approached the trio, explained to the woman that Conorak, whom he referred to by an alias, was his friend and attempted to lead him to his apartment by the arm. Three women dissuaded Dharma, explain, explaining they had phoned 911. Uh, so two officers arrived. Dharma he remained relaxed at all times. He informed the officers that Conorak was his 19-year-old boyfriend and that he had drunk too much following an argument. Uh, and they frequently behaved in this manner when intoxicated. The three women were exasperated. And when one of the trio in attempted to indicate to the officers that Conorak was bleeding from his buttocks and that he had seemingly struggled against Dharma's attempts to walk him away, the officer harshly then told the woman to butt out and shut the hell up uh, and not to interfere, adding that the incident was a domestic. The police didn't get involved. Now, that is, imagine you're that officer. Those two officers. That's what it used to be like, didn't it, with them, though, domestics? Even in this country, they just didn't want to know. I know, mate, but, like, his 14-year-old boy, imagine how those two guys feel now, like, knowing that... The thing is, he must have known... He, he, he must have known the kid was younger than 19, you know? It's hard, mate. Like, my but kids... then I don't know, because I haven't seen a picture of him, to be honest, so... No. My kid's 14, mate. That, but... If they foot. said, you know, there's blood coming from his anus, you you think they check at least. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like, you'd think the woman would not just notice it, she'd say, look, he's got blood coming from his ass." but... Yeah, you think that, like, you could understand if it was just, oh, look, he was, you know, trying to then... get away from Dharma. They'd think, yeah, it's a liver's tiff, whatever. But, you know, blood coming from your ass, maybe we should check that. Unless the woman like said afterwards in like books and stuff or yeah i noticed it but the police ignored it Do you know what i mean it got a bit embellished after the after it all came out or something i don't know um, i don't know you think if a woman would have noticed that at the time they just said it to the officers straight away yeah, but that's what i mean maybe she didn't notice it and she sort of embellished the story at a later date to the you know when the people were writing books on him and stuff i don't know i just I haven't found anywhere of the police officers saying different to like argue no, no, against that statement though. So when you think they would, yeah, because that's I'm sure obviously that's and terrible about it. That's fucking shocking, isn't it? Oh yeah. So against the protests of the three women, the officers simply covered uh, Conorak up with a towel and walked him to Dharma's apartment. Fucking hell! Um, they walked him to the apartment. Uh, in an effort to verify his claim that he and Conorak were lovers, Dharma showed the officers the two semi-nude Polaroid pictures he had taken of the young man earlier that evening. The officers later reported noting that there was a strange scent reminiscent of excrement inside the apartment. This odour was from the decomposing body of the victim from the week before. Uh, Dharma stated to, that to investigate this, one officer simply picked his head around the bedroom but didn't really take a good look. The officers left with a departing remark that Dharma should take better, 
better care of Conorak. Um, had they obviously had they conducted a background check on Dharma, it would have revealed that he was a convicted child molester who was on probation. Um, and upon the departure of the two police officers from his apartment, Dharma again injected hydraulic acid into the Conorak's brain. And on this second occasion, the injection was fatal. The following day, May 28th, Mr. Dharma, not Mr. Dharma at all, Dharma took a day's leave from work to devote himself to dismembering the bodies of Conorak and Hughes. Um, he retained both victims' skulls. On June the 30th, Dharma travelled to Chicago, where he encountered a 20-year-old man named Matt Turner at the bus station. Turner accepted Dharma's offer to travel to Milwaukee for a professional photo shoot. Dharma then drugged, strangled and dismembered Turner and placed his head and internal organs in uh, separate freezer bags. Turner was not reported missing for five days, um, where... Sorry, Turner was not reported missing. Uh, five days later, on July the 5th, Dharma lured 23-year-old Jeremiah Weinberger from, from a Chicago bar to his apartment on the promise of spending the weekend with him. Uh, he later drugged him twice before injecting boiling water through his skull, sending him into a coma where he died two days later. So again, he's altering the vic victimology's altering the yeah. way he's doing things. Totally like off subject here, but well, on mm -hmm. subject, but how fucking nuts is it that water kills someone, but the acid the didn't? Acid, yeah, I, 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 just, I don't get that at all. Like, Surely a drop of hydrochloric acid would just fucking ruin your brain, kill you instant. Yeah, and like his victimology's all over the place. It's like you went from a 14-year-old boy to a like a 30-year-old and it's up and down and all over the place. It's not just one age he's interested in. It, it sounds as if he's probably asked 10 or 15 people before this one person that night, though. Yeah. You know, because nowhere in this does he seem like he's a charmer. No one ever come out and said, like, you know, Bundy. There was hundreds, thousands of people who said, oh, he was such a charmer and he was this and he was that. No one's ever come out and said anything like this about Dharma. So it, it's most probably he's gone up and asked 20 different people the same question first, and then this one has happened to say yes. Yeah, yes. I think he's just that creepy, horrible little weirdo mm. that, you know, you, you see all over the place. It's just he obviously pushed his limits way beyond anyone ever should. Absolutely. Fucking hell. Um, so, yeah, so then on July 15th, and this is this thing now, he's on a full-blown spree, isn't he? It's like there's barely like weeks in between rather than months. Um, yeah, you're talking like weeks in between, if that. Um, so on July 15th, he encountered a 24-year-old, Oliver Lacey. Uh, he, Lacey agreed to his usual ruse of posing nude photographs, accompanied him to his apartment. The pair engaged in tentative sexual activity before Dharma drugged Lacey. Um, and this time, Dharma intended to prolong the time he spent with Lacey while alive. So after unsuccessfully attempting to render him un unconscious with chloroform, he phoned his workplace to request a day's absence again. 
this was granted, although the next day he was suspended from work. Uh, he then strangled Lacey. Dharma had sex with his corpse before dismembering him. And uh, he placed Lacey's head, heart and head, head and heart in the refrigerator uh, and his skeleton in the freezer. Four days later, he received word that he had been fired. Upon receiving this news, he lured another 25-year-old Joseph Braidhoft to his apartment. Braidhoft was strangled, left lying on Dharma's bed, covered with a sheet for two days. Uh, on July 21st, Dharma removed these sheets to find the head covered in maggots, uh, whereupon he decapitated the body, cleaned the head, placed it in the refrigerator again. And then he later acidified Braidhoft's Court torso, along with his two other victims. Um, yeah, just, just. But he's like, obviously, it's easy to say with hindsight, but he's on his last sort of. He's on a spree now before he gets caught. Um. So yes. So his arrest, July twenty-two, uh, July twenty-second, nine ninety-one. Dharma's approached by three men with an offer, uh, sorry, he approached three men with an offer of $100 to accompany him to his apartment to pose for nude photographs, drink beer, and just keep him company. One of the trio, Tracy, Evan, uh, Tracy Edwards, agreed to uh, accompany him with his, to his apartment. Upon entering Dharma's apartment, Edward noted a foul odour, several boxes of hydraulic acid on the floor. Jesus Christ, several boxes of hydraulic acid, mate. Where'd you even get all that? Especially in 1990. It's not like you could hop on Google and order it, is it? It's, it's nuts. But yeah, he was I fully prepared. But then, I suppose back then, because it wasn't like... I don't think it was a banned substance back then, and everyone was using it to like strip metal, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Um, so Dharma claimed it was the, the acid was for cleaning bricks. After some minor conversation, Edwards responded to his request to turn his head and view his tropical fish, whereupon uh, Dharma placed a handcuff around his wrist. When Ed was asked what's this what's happening, Dharma unsuccessfully attempted to cuff both his wrists together. Uh, Ed was told he then told Edwards to accompany him to this bedroom to pose for the nude photos. While inside the bedroom, Edwards noted nude male posters on the wall and a video of the Exorcist 3 playing. He also noted a 57-gallon drum in the corner from which a very strong odor was emanating. Uh, Dharma then brandished a knife, informed Edwards he was intended to take the nude pictures of him. Uh, in attempt to appease him, uh, to appease Dharma, Edwards played along, unbuttoned his shirt, and he kind of tried to, I would assume, as you would try and do in these, you always hear of like people who have been kidnapped, they'll play along with whatever their kidnapping do, because you just want to stay alive. It's yeah. like animal instincts isn't it just to do whatever you can to stay alive long enough that someone will come and save you um and he kept telling dharma that he was his friend and that he wouldn't run away after 
he informed uh, Dharma informed him he was going to eat his heart, and he would saying things like, you know, I'm your friend, I'm not going to run away, please don't hurt me, this type of stuff. But Edwards had decided he was going to either jump from the window or run through an unlocked front door as soon as he had the next opportunity. And when Edwards was needed to use the bathroom, he asked if he could sit in the sit with a beer in the living room where there was an air conditioning unit and Dharma agreed. So to a certain extent, Dharma sort of fell for that ruse, if you like, of him doing, you know, trying to stay alive, basically. Uh, inside the living room, Edwards waited until he observed Dharma and then as soon as he had a momentary sort of lapse of concentration, took his eye off him, uh, Edwards rose from the couch. He noted Dharma was not holding the handcuffs. So where he punched, uh, sorry, Edwards punched him in the face, knocking Dharma off balance and ran out the front door. 11.30pm on July 22nd, Edwards managed to flag down two police officers at the corner of the street. And the officers noted that he was handcuffed to one wrist. Uh, Edwards explained to the officers that some freak had placed the handcuffs on him. Um, when the officers arrived at Dharma's apartment, he invited the three of them inside. Um, and he indeed placed, he admitted to placing the handcuffs on Edwards, although he offered no explanation as to why he had done it. Edwards told the police that Dharma had also brandished a knife. Dharma made no comment to this revelation. Uh, Rolf, Rolf Mueller uh, was told by one of the officers that the key to the handcuff was in his bedside dresser. As Mueller entered the bedroom, Dharma attempted to pass Mueller to himself to retrieve the key. Uh, um, the second officer, Robert Wraith, informed him to sort of back off, you know, don't, don't move type thing. They obviously thought he was going to get the knife. Um, and as it was, there was a knife in, beneath the bed, which was next to the drawers. So he was, that's why he was trying to make a run for it. Uh, they found the open drawer, which had Polaroids of his many, many kills. Um, the old dismemberment, you know, you imagine finding that drawer, mate, of all those, oh. all those pictures of bodies and sex with corpses and, Fuck knows what, mate. No one how many there was as well, mate. No. That's scammy for life. Fucking right, mate. I um it's completely off subject for talking about being scarred for life. I used to play football with a guy, um, and his name was Brian. Uh he worked for the rail service and his job was to when people threw himself in front of a train go and retrieve the body parts um, oh. and on, on his first night he had to go and retrieve someone got hit by a train and he had to go and retrieve and uh, he retrieve a head so forever obviously when you've got a job like that you have to have black humor to get by because yeah. you just your mind won't be able to cope with it oh, you have to. Um, so his nickname was eddie for he still is as far as i know because on his first night he found a head and I mean I got full respect for people who do jobs like that because I don't think my brain would be able to, I think my brain would go I think my just wouldn't be able to cope 
Sorry, I went off random tangent. You say that, though, you desensitise to anything, mate. Yeah, you do it in there. It's, it's harsh and cruel to say, but it's human nature. If you do something enough, you desensitise to it. Yeah, and I think that's why you've got these people who watch all these websites of like killings and um, like executions and stuff. Um, because they just once they've watched them a few, like a few different ones, they they just it's all the same. Not all the same, but you, you say that, yeah, totally. But then if they ever watched a live one, they'd probably like feel sick. Mm. You know, it's it's that whole different ball game, isn't it? And but you yeah. imagine like having to go and pick up, like you say, severed heads and things. Yes, you'd have to have black humour, mate. Otherwise, you you eat yourself up. Oh yeah. So he was, um, yeah. So he's arrested. That was how he's arrested. Um, he died in 1994. Dharma left his cell to conduct his assigned work detail, accompanying him with two fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson and Chris Scarver. They were left unsupervised in the showers of the gym for approximately 20 minutes. At 10 past 8 in the morning, Dharma was discovered on the floor at the bathroom uh, with extreme head and facial wounds. He had been severely bludgeoned around the head and face with a metal bar. He had been also re- repeatedly struck against the wall in the hospital. Uh, he was still alive and was rushed to a nearby hospital, but he was pronounced dead an hour later. Um, sorry, i got no, no sympathy whatsoever. Um, I just and, wish he'd suffered a bit more, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, and that is the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, Scarver deserves more praise than Dahmer. Yeah, oh, fucking right. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, in many ways, this has been the hardest podcast I've had to do out of all 30, nearly 40 now. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to read up on Dharma to do his victims justice and make sure my info was factually correct. And I've got an interest in true crime and serial killers, hence adding this series to the other series we do uh, and the shows. But uh, I won't. I won't lie, it was heavy reading and watching documentaries and listening to the horrific stuff he had done uh, to so many people was difficult. But it's interesting. I've always found it interesting. But I think it's very difficult to speak speak about it. Um, yeah, everyone out there, please don't think any way, shape or form we're glorifying any of the actions of any of these people. We're both fathers and we, we speak off air, obviously, and even just speaking about this subject and having to look into it and read about it, it makes us feel ill. We've got kids and we know there's people in this world, there's other dharmas about. That's that's the bottom line. That's the harsh fucking truth. And oh, it's, yeah, big time, man. And it's, well, uh, it's one of those things. Understand. Like, as we do these... Oh, definitely, mate. We want to understand it. We want to talk about it. We... You know, it is interesting, but also we want to, uh, as I go, as we go through these different pod- serial killers and podcasts, we'll get better in terms of how we lay out the show and we'll try new things. Obviously, with this one, we've gone through every single murder one at a time. 
I'm not sure if we're going to continually do that or if we're going to shorten them down or if we're going to keep doing them in two parts. We might do that so that we can do them justice. Um, so, yeah, just guys, let us know whether you'd rather we condense it down into like a one sort of 75 minute hour, uh, 75 minute show or whether you would rather do like two one hour shows, whatever works best for you guys. But um, we'll be back with another serial killer very soon. Our next show is on Harold Shipman, which is uh, one which I remember growing up and being very, very aware of. Uh, so, yeah, he was one of the most notorious UK serial killers ever. He was a doctor. He's one of the most local notorious TV. serial killers in the world ever. Oh, absolutely, mate. But um, also so one of the most unknown. Yeah. Um, I, funny enough, I interviewed... Uh, an American actress yesterday or Friday and um, she hadn't heard of Harold Shipman so I mean goes to show how many serial killers yeah. there are around the world because not everyone is aware of all of them um, okay guys so you can find Reese on Twitter at Shaw Celtic you can find the show on at AceCast underscore Nation please subscribe to the YouTube channel help us keep producing content and podcasts Get our growing lists of shows and series and help us keep getting guests. Check us out on Facebook and all the shows are available on audio download, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, podcast.co, all those good sites. Uh, you can join us next time for another episode of the Serial Killer Files. Look out for our weekly show on conspiracy theories as well as all our other shows and series that we do. Uh, thank you guys for watching. Thank you, Reese, for joining me. Always a pleasure. And uh, we'll see you next time. Sports Social Podcast Network.